0: Welcome to Wild Blue Yonder on the Air, Air University's podcast. Today's guest is General Larry Spencer, who retired as the 37th Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force. His memoir, Dark Horse, from the Horseshoe to the Pentagon, is newly released from Naval Institute Press, and we're excited to have him on today to talk about his career. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with
0: you. To get started, I was really interested reading your book that you Your family has a long tradition of military service, but you came to be an airman through very different circumstances. Can you tell me about your enlistment?
1: You're right. My grandfather served in the Army in World War I. My dad joined the Army right out of high school and served in the Korean War. And all of his uncles either served in the Army, there was one Navy and one Marine, but n- no Air Force. And frankly, the Air Force or the military wasn't on my mind after high school. If I can take you back to the 70s when I graduated high school, and it was Vietnam protests, civil rights movement, you know, there was just a lot of sort of anti military sentiment at the time. The official draft was over, but you still had to register once you turned 18. So I I had registered, but I I was not planning to join the military, not because I didn't like it or I didn't respect my dad and my granddad's service, but it it just wasn't the thing to do amongst my peers. The problem though was when I graduated from high school, I was a little bit lost, kind of in a fog, had no idea what I was going to do. You know, I had college uh, football scholarship offers, but as the oldest of six or or five siblings and my parents' mother hadn't graduated from high school, my my father had spent all of his time as a soldier in the Army. It was just confusing, and no one knew how to help me. So temporarily, I was living in my parents' basement. I took a job uh, as a GS1 in the Census Bureau in D.C., and I got off work one day and went down to, it was a mall not far from the Census Bureau. And if you think about the times, I remember what I bought. Now, I know this is hard to imagine now, but back then, you know, I had an Afro like you wouldn't believe. And so here I am walking around the mall. I wish I could grow one now, but, but those days along behind me. So I was in the mall. I remember I bought a purple jumpsuit and a matching pair of high platform shoes. And so I was walking through the mall and I noticed the Air Force recruiter's office and the sort of really cool pictures of airplanes. And so again, I just paused there for a second and was looking at the pictures. The uh, gentleman that was in, in the office came out, started talking to me and asking me questions. He kind of, I don't think it was inappropriate necessarily, but certainly a good tactic to get me in because he said, well, do you play football? And I said, of course. And he said, well, do you like to play football for the Air Force? And then he got my attention. So I went in and we had a conversation about, you know, you can enlist now and, you know, then go to the Air Force Academy and play football. And, you know, all that was technically possible, but not practically. Literally, I sort of stumbled in his office. And about an hour later, I stumbled out of there and I was in the Air Force. It happened that quickly. It's inexplicable even today. My parents didn't know anything about it. Friends, it just happened. And the next thing I knew, I was uh, on my way to basic training.
0: The Air Force, though, really did deliver on a, a promise of seeing the world because you went from rural Virginia to Taiwan. What was that culture clash like?
1: Yeah, it, it was a clash in a lot of different ways. So once I enlisted, my first assignment was down at Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina. I met my wife there. We got married and we had a child. And so my, my son was two or three months old. I've got now a new wife, new child. And out of the blue, they you know my boss calls me in and said, guess what? You know, you're going to Taiwan? for a year, and you have to leave your family. And it it was devastating for me and and my family. I begged to get out of it. And by the way, my wife was pregnant again. And so my two sons are only 11 months apart. And so here I am with a new wife, a baby, and another one on the way. And they said, sorry, you're going to leave for a year. So that in and of itself was traumatic. But then to get on the other side of the world, and I was an airman. uh, So I'm I'm 18, 19 years old. So it it was quite a shock. In hindsight, I learned a lot from it. And it was a great experience in hindsight. But at the time, I mean, it was, It was pretty tough for a really young person who was sort of torn away from his brand new family.
0: All through your career, you've had some fantastic mentors. And while you were an enlisted airman, there were some folks who really saw leadership potential in you and urged you to go for a commission. Can you tell us how you crossed the divide and became an officer?
1: Yeah, that, that was interesting. And, and people ask me a lot. You know, you were enlisted for a little over seven years. What was the difference? What was that like? And, you know, there were some similarities, but there were a lot of differences as well. As a, you know, young high school graduate going to basic training, military training, from the time I bothered. The way, when I went to basic training, it was the first time I'd ever flown on an airplane. First time I'd been to an airport. So that, that was exciting, you know, to fly on an airplane. But when I got off the airplane and back there, you know, that was before 9-11. So we stepped off the airplane into the terminal and, and there was a drill instructor, a TI screaming at us already. And so he yelled at us from the time we, and, and people, you got passengers, I mean, passengers and other folks waiting on flights, kind of snickering at, you know, all of us getting yelled at, but he paraded us down and got our bags. We got them. On a bus and went over to Lackland Air Force Base in uh, San Antonio. What was interesting is everything we had to do, they told us. You know, here's how you fold your clothes. Here's how you march. Here's h- how you do this, and here's how you do that. By the way, I enjoyed it. Having grown up in sports, to me it was just like a coach, you know, trying to make us better. So I enjoyed basic training. But now, fast forward to Officer's Training School. Quite a different approach. One, I, I landed at the exact same airport, almost exactly eight years later, and there was nobody there to meet me. So I walked down and got my my suitcase. I got a cab and went over to to Lackland when I I was there in uniform. At this point, I'm a staff sergeant. And uh, so I go in a room and one of the upperclassmen came in with literally with just an old razor blade and cut my stripes off. And then we were separated. In basic training, you're in an open bay with a whole lot of other airmen. But in OTS, it was two to a room. And so we got in a room, had a roommate and in walks our instructor for the next 90 days. And it was a very, very sharp second lieutenant. Her name was Carol Mercer. I'll never forget her. Very, Very very impressive and spit and polish. I mean, just the epitome of what an officer should look like. And she walked in, she handed us a thick book and said, I'm coming back in 30 minutes and inspect this room. You know, no, this is how you do this. This is how you fold your clothes. None of that. And, you know, it was amazing how different it was. So they were really trying to develop leaders. And the big difference was in basic training, they told us how to do it. In officers training school, they said, Here are the instructions. You go figure out how to do it. And by the way, if you have to do it a little bit different than the book, we're okay with that as long as you accomplish the mission. So quite a different approach, but I actually enjoy both.
0: Your absolute love and respect for your parents shines through your book. And for most of your life, you really knew them as products of the silent generation. They're very stoic. They're very reserved. But then as an adult, you learn some really striking things about them, more about your your father's service in Korea, your mother's really brave stand at, at her high school. What was it like then seeing them as an adult?
1: Yeah, that was Quite an experience, because growing up over in Southeast D.C., and initially my father was active duty uh, army, he, in place of his left hand, he wore a hook because his hand had been amputated as a result of wounds in the Korean War. And number one, he never told us about that. He never talked about it. And so we were just sort of at a loss as to exactly what happened. But the worse than that, I got teased all the time. You know, kids are cruel and they would make Captain Hook jokes, you know, about my father and just said all kinds of cruel things. And and so that was kind of tough, but what was worse was I I never really knew what happened. And my mother, she didn't quite complete the 10th grade. I never really understood why, but she never talked about it. It never came up. And so, uh, In both cases, rather shockingly, when I was selected for colonel, the rank of colonel. I went by my father's house because he wanted to go to the pinning on ceremony. He handed me a book out of the blue. I, I, he'd never done that before, and the name of the book was Road to Yichon, and it was about a company of soldiers and their experience during the Korean War. So he said, "Hey, go read this," and I said, uh, "Okay." Uh, you know, I, I didn't think much about it. I actually kept it on my nightstand for a couple of weeks, and then one night I decided to read it. And I was, as I read it though, I couldn't put it down because I was struck by the uh, intensity of the Korean War effort and the way it was described and how uh, violent uh, the war was. Uh, Then I got about halfway through the book and it it stopped me in my tracks because there were about three pages dedicated to my father. The the book had been written by my father's company commander, who was a lieutenant at the time. You know, if you think about where we are in history, the military was integrated around 1948 by President Truman. But for practical purposes, the military was still segregated. So my father was in a segregated unit and his company commander was was african-american but they were commanded by white troops and as i was reading this you know these three or four pages it just blew me away because and i'll just briefly describe that he was driving a bulldozer if you will heavy equipment and they were actually trying to move the bulldozer from one town to another which was about 100 miles and so it would take a long time for a bulldozer doesn't travel very fast and so the rest of the company left And it was just he and another Sergeant Monroe that were left to move this bulldozer. In the course of them driving at night, he fell off the bulldozer. Not exactly clear to me if it was because of enemy fire or if they fell asleep or what exactly happened. But he fell off the bulldozer as it was still moving fell onto the tracks, instinctively rolled himself off the tracks on the ground, but caught his left hand in the gears of the uh, bulldozer and just mauled his hand. And he he was there on the ground. It was cold. He got gangrene in his hand, eventually fell into a coma. They put him on what was called back then an iron lung to keep him alive, sent him by ship to Japan, amputated his left hand, sent him back to Walter Reed for recovery. And again, you got to think now, I'm a colonel in the Air Force, and this is the first time I, I get to hear this. Similarly with my mother, at this point, I'm a four-star general. And the vice chief of staff of the Air Force and my uncle called me and asked me, would I speak at his former high school, which is now a museum? It's Moten High School is now in Farmville, Virginia, is now now a museum. And so I said, sure. But I, so I started doing some research. And again, I was just blown away uh, because I was able to dig up some old films and my mother was in some of these films. But again, essentially, my mother was in Moten High School. Again, back then, the law of the land was separate but equal, which meant that schools could be segregated as long as the uh, resources and the instruction were equal. Of course, they were not. And so the school my mother was in, I believe it was built for like 150 people, students or so. It had 450 students in it. the roof leaked. They had to uh, take umbrellas with them during class it rained. They had no gym, no laboratory. And some of the students actually went to class and broken down school buses. And so they decided amongst themselves as a school body that they would protest. And so they protested, they stopped going to class. And the sort of progression of that, that. That was they teamed up with the NAACP, which teamed up with a Supreme Court case, Brown versus the Board of Education, that overturned segregation in schools. So as it turned out, again, blown away by my own mother. I, I didn't know it. She'd never say anything about it.
0: If I can bring in another remarkable person from your life, that is, I was really moved with your description of how you met your wife, that you had developed a really close friendship and then decided to marry and uh, clearly built a relationship that withstood some incredible stresses of a, a military career. Can you talk about her?
1: Sure. And I, probably the folks that will listen to your broadcast have an appreciation for the role that families play in the military. Most folks do not have that appreciation on over the sacrifices they make. They are as much a part of the military as the member that's in the military. And so in my case, you know, here I am, a young 18-year-old, single, stationed in North Carolina. One day, we decided to go out with some of my friends to his girlfriend's house. When I walked in, there were other young women there. I was always kind of shy, so I kind of walked in and noticed her great smile, but uh, she actually came over and started talking to me. And that really turned into a series of dates, endless phone calls, you know, late at night. And she really became my best friend. She really did. I mean, and growing up as I did, particularly as pretty much an introvert, I didn't really have a lot of close friends. And so she was the first person uh, in my life that I felt like I could just talk to about anything. And it was something I really appreciated. And so we we never talked about getting married because we were just such good friends and we would go out and have fun. And, you know, she would tell me about her dreams and in fact she wanted to join the army and, and I would tell her about what I wanted to do and I wasn't married and didn't have any kids but I had a dependent and that dependent's name was a 1968 uh, Chevrolet Nova and I sunk all my money into that car the stereo in the car was worth more than the car itself and you could hear me coming a mile away uh, in that thing but we were riding around in that one night and out of the blue I just said you know this friendship has means more to me than friendship I mean it, you know it has turned into love and and I said, you know, I don't know, I'm taking a chance here because I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but, you know, I've, I've been thinking about getting asking you to get married. And of course, she said, well, are you going to ask or not? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, yes. And, and then she said yes. And so we got married. And I think what's really important about that is that friendship was first. And that came in handy because we had 24 moves over my career. And as I talked about, you know, we weren't married very long before I had to leave for a year. And she then had a baby plus another on the way. And by the way, when my second son was born, they wouldn't let me come home. So I didn't meet my second son till he was two two or three months old. So she had to deal with all of that. And so all of the moves, places we'd never been to before, out in the middle of nowhere to places like DC, deployments overseas, all of that. Because we had that friendship first, that allowed my family structure to stay in- intact and stay strong while we went through military career. I'll tell you, tell you a quick story. And, and this was Actually, after I retire, but I would put this under the category of don't try this at home because (laughs) just to show you how this works, we have a home in North Carolina that we rent out that I pretty much managed myself. And we decided that the two of us would go down and re-drywall the garage. And I guess my advice to anyone is to not try that with your spouse uh, (laughs) by yourself because now we got through it, but I can remember like it was yesterday, you you know, drywall is heavy and it's messy. We would hold the stuff up, both of us. And I say, okay now hold it right there. Don't let it move. I'd go up the ladder and then she would <laughs> drop down. So I-, I figured if we got through that, we could get through anything. <laughs>
0: That really is a true test of teamwork. <laughs> it's really interesting that as a, an introvert and as an airman, you did your intermediate developmental education with the Marines. What do you think having that joint component has done to let you see how our sister services work and how joint relationships should be?
1: Yeah, it was great. First of all, you know, I respected all the services anyway, but just got a tremendous amount of respect for the Marine Corps having lived with them for a year, which included, by the way, something. I didn't enjoy it too much, Where we we had to go out for a week and live in a tent out in the woods. So that wasn't wasn't particularly enjoyable, but it was just a really great time. And it helped me throughout my career as I went into joint assignments and I understood how the joint force works together. And quite frankly, one of the things it did for me was it broke down this sort of parochialism I had that, hey, I'm in the Air Force, we're the best service, we have the best people, we have the smart people, we're the innovative people. And all that's true, except we're not the best, they're all the best. And so it, it, it really helped me put in perspective the other services with the Air Force, that they are all have dedicated, hardworking, committed people who are very smart, and our country is fortunate to have them. That said, and I'll tell you a quick, all of this I write about in the book, by the way, but I'll, a quick story. So in the Marine Corps Command and Staff College at Quantico, there are 12 Air Force, 12 Army, 12 Navy. And I was the, of course, the only Air Force in my little group. It was about oh, 15 of us. And the Marine Corps operations were completely new to me. I mean, you know, taking the beach and trajectory of munitions coming out of a howitzer, I mean, I didn't know anything about that stuff. And so our first test was they gave us a set of forces, they gave us enemy forces, and they said, okay, go home and draw up on a whiteboard your plan of attack. How are you going to take the beach? And so I wanted to do well, and I was sort of excited because I was learning some new things. I literally did not sleep that night. I stayed up all night working on it. And it was beautiful. I had crayon colors and different color markers and big arrows. And it was beautiful. And so I went in the next morning and I put my whiteboard up on the stand and covered it with a cover. I went out to get a cup of coffee. So I came back and everyone was in the class. And my instructor, who was a really good guy, Lieutenant Colonel, and we were at that time, mostly majors. He said, okay, Larry, you up first, you know, tell me how an Air Force guy is going to take the beach. And so I was excited. I lifted the... Cover off of my, my war plan, and my classmates, I'll just be kind, uh, had made some alterations to my plan, unbeknownst to me. And they got a marker and marked up my whiteboard. And they said, The first thing an Air Force guy is going to do when we take the beach is go find a hotel. So they drew a picture of a Ritz Carlton on, on, on my on my war plan. They then said, the second thing an Air Force guy is gonna wanna do is build an O club. And so they drew a picture of an O club. And then they said, finally, any Air Force guy, once you take the beach, is gonna wanna take the day off and go play golf. And so they drew a picture of an 18 hole golf course on my board. Now, you could hear the laughter all over the building except for me. I I didn't think it was all that that funny, but it turned out fine. You know, the instructor, he knew they had done it and he had already looked at my plan and he knew the work i put into it. So it, it was sort of lighthearted. But even though it took me a while to get over that, I met some really lifelong friends there that I followed all throughout my career. And again, just got a tremendous amount of respect for the Marine Corps and other services in general on the opportunities I had to work in a joint environment.
0: Your book is your memoir, but what I really found very compelling is that you attract a series of extraordinary mentors, just people who see something extraordinary in you and are there at the turning points of your life and your career. Would you like to talk about some of them?
1: Sure. And, and I'm, I'm actually glad you said that because my intent was not so much for the book to be about me, but to try to help other people in their professional and life journey to see some of the things I went through. Through some of the challenges I had to overcome and hopefully help them on their journey. But at mentorship for me has been the absolute uh, game changer from the time that I entered the Air Force as a young airman until th- I retired. And, and in fact, I have mentors today that I rely on. And more importantly, I spend a lot of my time trying to mentor others because I experienced firsthand how important that was to me. So I spend an extraordinary amount of time trying to mentor others now. But just to give you a couple of examples, again, I, I cover this in the book, but when I first arrived at my my first base. I, I never left D.C. I grew up in D.C. And so I got orders that said I'm going to Fayetteville, North Carolina. I didn't know where that was. So I got on a bus, literally a Greyhound bus. I caught in downtown D.C., rode it down to Fayetteville, didn't know anything about North Carolina or Fayetteville. By the way, I was in my—I didn't know any better. I was in my service dress uniform and it was in the wintertime. And back then, I wish they still made it. They don't make this anymore. But we used to have what they called a horse blanket, this really thick coat, which was great. I wish I still had it. So I'm in my horse blanket coat and I still had have my green duffel bag I step off the bus and I'm a deer in the headlights and so a cab driver knew that and came up to me and said hey you must be going to Pope Air Force Base and I said yes so he he took me out there and this may be hard to believe I'd never ridden in a cab before it's just like I'd never flown an airplane before so I'm sitting in the back of the cab and I'm noticing this machine that's clicking off money and I'm getting a little nervous because I had maybe five dollars on me that's about it and we hit five dollars before we got three or four minutes into the trip and so I was nervous but I didn't know what to say because I didn't want him to put me out on the street. So he took me to the base. And I said, sir, I have to apologize. I've only got $5. I really feel awful, but if you will give me your address, I promise you, I will mail you the money. And he turned around, he said, look, don't worry about it. He said, thank you for your service. I was glad to bring you out here. And so he let me go. So I really appreciated that. But it was at the end of the day, back then, they don't have this anymore, but they have something that was called a CQ, a charger quarters, that was always on duty 24 hours a day. They couldn't end process to me because the duty day was over and it was a Friday. They gave me a dorm number, temporary dorm building number, and room, but no ride, no nothing. There was no sponsorship program. Nobody met me, no nothing. So here I am dragging my duffel bag in my service dress uniform over to a dorm. I got into dorm. It was late at night. So I got up the next morning and I'm thinking, man, I need to go. I'm ready to go to dining hall. So where is that? Where's chow hall? Again, I put on my service dress uniform and I'm walking over to the chow hall. I got in the chow hall. And back then, this changed over time. Back then, they actually had a meal card. It was separate from the ID card. Of course, I didn't have one because I had not in process. And the guy that was in there would not let me eat. I showed him my ID card. I said, look, this is my, I just got here. I'm new. And he should have known that, but he would not let me go in. And I was so afraid to say anything. I went to, back to my dorm and I didn't eat the whole weekend. I, just, other than water out of the water fountain. That was, And so again, I, now I've made up for it since then, but it was, I was just so traumatized. I didn't know what to do. I was just so scared. And so needless to say, Monday morning in my service dress and my horse blanket, I went over to personnel. They in processed me. I said, look, you need to find me a meal card. And so I finally get my meal card and it's lunchtime. I'm on my way to get my meal card and a chief master sergeant. So which I had never seen before, yelled out at me. He knew I was new. He could tell, and I'm dragging a duffel bag. And he just wanted to help. And he said, Airman, come over here. And I, back then, I did what most one-stripers would do. I turned around and went the other way. And then he yelled out. He said, Airman, don't you walk away from me. So I had no choice. I grabbed my duffel bag went over to him, and I saluted, which I shouldn't have done. And, of course, he gave me the classic response. He said, you don't need to salute me. I work for a living, so you you don't don't salute me. But I talked to him. He understood my circumstance. By the way, as a chief master sergeant, one of the wonders of the world I've never been able to figure out is every senior NCO I know has a pickup truck. I I don't know why, but they just do. (laughs) So he threw my duffel bag in his pickup truck. We went over. He ate lunch with me. I was scared to death at at the table with him. But he then took me over to my unit, got me settled in with another chief that was there. His name was Chief Mass Sergeant Brown. He ended up being a not only a mentor then, but a mentor through most of my enlisted career. And because I ended up leaving Pope, going to a couple of assignments, coming back, He had come back and now was a senior enlisted member for the entire base, and he helped me get my college degree completed and helped me fill out the application for officer Training School. So those type of mentors have been there for me my entire career. They are still there, and I feel like it's almost a duty of mine now to get back because they were so instrumental in my career and continue to be instrumental in my life.
0: Throughout your career, you've also encountered people on the other side of that coin whose unconscious bias has really come through in ways that showed that they didn't think you belonged in some of the places that you were, whether it was at the commissary or at the Pentagon. How has that affected you?
1: Yeah, great question. And uh, particularly in the context of all the George Floyd issues, protests, and everything that's going on around us. But people often ask me, were you discriminated against while you were in in the military? And my response is twofold. First of all, it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to say that I was discriminated against if I retired as a four-star or so that. That would be hard to claim, but separate away from that, absolutely not. Every supervisor I had was very, very supportive, went above and beyond to help me, and I feel very, very fortunate. That said, though, I did encounter many, many episodes of of inappropriate language, sort of racist comments and views, and unconscious bias that affected me and my wife personally. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not, you know, the, the Air Force is not a racist organization, but there was Those type of things that I had to navigate my way through as I came through the Air Force, and by the way, I think the same thing would have taken place if I was in IBM or you know Amazon or any place else probably. Just to give you an example, because this happened to me throughout my career as vice chief, and this was not long before I retired. I was living over at Joint Base Anacostia-Bowling, and I had a really busy day, and so I wanted to go get a quick workout at the gym. And so it's 5:30 in the morning. I pull up to the gym. I'm in my workout gear. My uniform's in a bag hanging up in the car. I pull in to, they only had two general officer parking spaces. I pull into the space. I step out of the car in my workout gear. And there's a gentleman who is parked in the road behind me that saw me get out. And he immediately got out of his car. I don't know why he was sitting there. He came up to me and started chewing me up one side down the other because he said, how dare me park in a general officer spot? And he actually lectured me on why it was important for general officers to be able to get in and out of facilities because they had such a busy schedule. Interestingly enough, there was a, chief master sergeant that I knew personally who was walking by at the time. And he was just livid because we knew each other. He started to come over to give this guy a piece of his mind. But I held up my hand and said, hey, no, I got it because I wasn't mad. and, And I wasn't mad because it had happened to me so many times before. And so at the end of this diatribe by this guy, Uh, I looked him right in the eye and I said, what makes you think I'm not a general officer? And it was amazing to see. It was literally like a light bulb came on in his head that, oh, my God, you know, I just assumed you were not. And I said, look, if you had just looked at my windshield, you would have saw four stars on it and you could have saved yourself and me a lot of trouble. And here's the thing, though, that's interesting about this particular incident. This gentleman was African-American. So this is in a period of time where we have an African-American president and this young man. And had been, could not see someone who looked like him as a general officer. And that had happened to me throughout my career. It happened to my wife. My wife had been in social functions with other spouses, and it wasn't nothing for a spouse to walk up to her and ask her to go get them a drink because they assumed she was part of the staff. So yeah, those kind of things happen. They continue to happen. I don't blame the Air Force for that, but I do think it's something that the Air Force and the military in general don't talk about enough. It's frustrating to me that there are folks who don't think those things happen, and they think we're making these stories up and, and really not. So yeah, it, it was, it's been quite a journey for me. I'm still on the journey, but that's one of the things I think uh, in the book that people will find a little bit unique because those are things I had to navigate around as I progressed through my career.
0: And that really frames perfectly the powerful message of your meeting with Congressman John Lewis about being able to see people like you in positions that you would aspire to. Could you tell me about that meeting? That one made me cry. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> that wasn't my intent, but I, it, it, throughout my career, I've been very fortunate. I've been blessed in my career. There's no question about it. I don't think I'm any any smarter, any better than anybody else. I mean, I was just very fortunate to have achieved the things that I was able to achieve and I had a lot of help doing it. But one of the things I got to do and the jobs I had was visit the Hill a lot. I mean, I went over the Hill for budget testimonies and meetings, and you know, meeting with both folks in the Senate and the House. I mean it was, I just got to do that a lot. And and I consider it an honor, frankly. And generally, I'm not awed by celebrity. But when I had the opportunity to go meet with Congressman John Lewis, I was awed. And I didn't say a whole lot because I was just so blown away by this small in stature gentleman that had given his whole life to make our country better. And I walked to his office and it was like a, a museum, a civil rights museum. Every inch of his wall was covered with pictures of himself and Martin Luther King Jr., pictures of himself with President John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, and just an amazing office of history. We were there, it was he and a couple of my other staff, we were all blown away. But he took almost two hours with us, and he talked, us through his experiences. One in particular, I remember he said, told us about the march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge when he ended up getting a concussion and had to be hospitalized. He said when he got over the bridge, there was a gentleman there on a horse who said they had to turn back and he said, okay, you know, we're not going to fight you. We don't want any violence. He said, would you allow me to just pray, and then we'll pray, and then we'll go back. And he said, as he knelt down to pray, he they hit him over the head with a, a club, and it was just, I was just, I, again, I, you know, all of us talk, you know, about how we can make society better, how we can help our country get better. Here's a guy who dedicated his life to doing it, and it, I was just blown away by it, because he's such a, a humble person who it, it wasn't after any credit for himself. His life was dedicated to making our country better, and you know, it's kind of funny in hindsight because I thought I would sort of get profound because he had been so profound with me. And I said, you know, Congressman Lewis, you know, God rest his soul. I said, where are the John Lewis's of the day? I mean, you know, back during the civil rights movement, there was Martin Luther King Jr. There was himself. I mean, all of these icons that everyone turned to as leaders of the civil rights movement. And I said, where are the leaders today? Almost in a uh, sarcastic way and thinking he would come back with some, yeah, you know, I don't know why people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. But his answer was, I'm looking at one right now. And that sort of stopped me in my tracks for a lot of reasons. I thought, you know, his answer was profound in that he was saying we all have responsibility. We, we shouldn't I shouldn't be looking at him or others to do something. I should do as he said. And that is don't walk past the problem. And even if that's only in my area of, of influence, most of us, it's hard for us to believe. By the way, after the Joy Ford incident, I had a ton of people call me that I served with essentially saying, hey, well, are things really that bad? Do you you really get stopped by the cops? And I said, yeah, all the time. Uh, So it was an opportunity to have that discussion. But they all admitted to me that they had heard conversations and been engaged with people who said things that caused them to cringe a little bit. But the important thing was they didn't say anything because it may have alienated them with their group. And so they just remained silent. And I'm afraid that a lot of us do that, me included. We hear things, we see things, and it's just easier just to walk away and say, man, that was awful, but not to say anything to them. And that's what I learned, I think, mostly from that visit. That all of us, including me, have responsibility to make our country better. And it takes courage to stand up to someone that I may know and respect who says or does something inappropriate to say, you know what, you shouldn't have said that. And you know what, that's offensive. So please don't do that again. And so I've tried to be better at that. But it's one of those opportunities in your life that, you know, you will never forget. I I will certainly never forget it.
0: As a leader, you've taken the opportunity to always push for a diverse set of voices at the table, demographic, but also in terms of your experience and, and your career. Why should non-pilots be part of making the Air Force a stronger, better organization?
1: <laughs> yes, that's a good question, uh, because I look at diversity with a big D. It includes race and ethnicity and gender but it also includes background and experience because it sort of just makes common sense to me that if there's a problem and you're searching for a solution, you would want Varied and diverse opinions about that problem. A a leader can throw a problem in the middle of the table and get all types of views and based on all types of life lenses and experiences. And so I really think that's critical to have folks at the table, at the leadership table from all different backgrounds. I'll give you a quick story. Again, this is in the book as well, but when I was a second lieutenant, I was assigned to Robbins Air Force Base. So I go into a staff meeting, commander staff meeting, he was a two star. So again, I'm a second lieutenant. I'm the junior person in the room. And I happen to be the only African-American in the room. So I'm all the way in the back, which was fine. And so they're having this discussion around the table. And based on my enlisted experience, I knew a little bit something about that issue, as it turns out, more so than most of the folks around the table. But of course, I didn't say anything. I'm a lieutenant sitting in the back. So they were frustrated and they were, weren't were sure what they were going to do. So the commander said, OK, well, we beat this enough for one day. Let's sleep on it and come back and talk tomorrow. You know, most staff meetings, it's sort of tr- a tradition to, once the meeting is over, sort of go around the room and ask if anybody's got anything they want to bring up. And so he went around the front table, and then he swung his chair around and was going around the room. And he locks eyes with me and said, oh, my God, Lieutenant, what are you doing here? And I said, I just arrived. I told him where I worked. And so he jokingly said to me, well, I guess as a brand new lieutenant, you're brand new to the Air Force, much less this command. I bet you have an answer to this problem. And I said, well, sir, actually, I do have an opinion. I don't know if I have an answer, but I have an opinion. And he kind of looked. He really didn't want my opinion. He he was just trying to be nice. And so he said, "Okay, lieutenant, you give us the answer to this problem. And so I laid out for him what I thought was an approach that might work. And he says, "Okay, thanks, lieutenant. We appreciate it. And he continued around the room. He swung his chair back around to the main table and he stopped for a second. He swung his chair back around, looked me straight in the eye and said, Lieutenant, will you repeat what you just said? And so I repeated it again and he turned back around to the table and he said, oh, my God, why didn't we think of that? Now, to be clear, what I said was not rocket science or brain surgery. It was just that I had experience with that issue and they didn't. And so it's it's why I believe diversity is so important. Now, by the way, because diverse opinions or varied opinions aren't always good ones, because you're at the table, it doesn't mean that every time you come up with an idea that leadership needs to take it and run with. But I think what they do need though, is to be inclusive, to include everybody, to include different points of view around the table, listen, and then weigh all the alternatives before they make a decision. But I would not ever, ever start up a company of my own without having a diverse staff, because I would invite and want folks to contribute uh, to make us a a stronger organization, which I think diversity does. It makes us a stronger organization.
0: And we're just now getting around to talking about your career field. I really enjoyed your previous book, The Green Eye Shades of War, which you did with Air University Press, about the history of financial managers in war. And throughout your career, it's been a, a big motivation for you to be a good steward of the government's money. What are some of the things that you found, innovative ways to save money and respect the taxpayers?
1: you know, one of the things I talk about growing up in the uh, Southeast was, uh, you know, the school system wasn't very good and, and I wasn't a good student anyway, so I'm not sure it would have mattered. But one thing I remember was a story one of my elementary school teachers read to us in class. It was titled The Ant and the Grasshopper, and it was one of Aesop's fables that essentially talked about to be thrifty and safe and kind of work while the sun is shining so you'll be prepared when it's raining and, and snowy, which the grasshopper was not. That and my own father, he was a master at saving. Saving money and working on his own car, doing his own plumbing and buying in bulk and all of that. So I have always been one who was passionate about efficiency and uh, saving money. And so all of the Lean Six Sigma and all that, I was really into all that stuff. And so... In the Department of Defense, I found, and in the Air Force, I always, every assignment I had, I was sort of disappointed at the, to see what I considered was just waste of money. And look, this is not about being penny wise and pound foolish, because I believe in having the best Air Force in the world with the best equipment and the best trained people. I'm not talking about skimping on mission requirements, but it seems to me we just waste a lot of money. And there were a lot of smarter ways to do it. And so throughout my career, I was constantly finding ways that we could operate more efficiently. And I, I've got a thousand of, them, I examples of that, but I'll give you one. When I was a squadron commander at Seymour Johnson in the offshore, in North Carolina, I had the opportunity to actually conduct a project The wing commander on how we could get more efficient. So I gathered a team together. And by the way, this was a load of fun for me because I went and got all those rebels on the base who would always go home and tell their neighbors and friends how inefficient the base was. And I said, okay, here's your put up or shut up moment. Give me some examples. And I'm telling you, we started reviewing contracts as an example. And we reviewed the grounds maintenance contract that hadn't been reviewed in years. And we were paying for grass being cut where there was no longer grass. And we were paying for to empty trash cans and build that no longer existed. It was incredible. One in particular I remember was we had a dining hall on the flight line that was very close to the dining hall for the main base. And the flight line dining hall was mainly used by the fire department so they could respond very quickly if there was an emergency. And I was good with that. Except the dining hall was very expensive because, you know, obviously you have to maintain food at, at certain temperatures. And so you had the main dining hall that had all the equipment, but then they had to maintain the same standards at the dining hall and the flight line. So I toured the dining hall. I kept looking at it and I finally went into the commander said, sir, this is not gonna be popular, but I, I think we ought to consider closing it the flight line dining hall. And I laid out the case and he said, Okay, go talk to the fire chief who was adamantly against it and said, look, if you can convince him, I'll support you. And so <laughs> It happened that the fire chief, he was a great guy, and so he initially said, well, if we close this dining hall, we won't be able to respond to something that happens on the flight line. And I said, you know, chief, that's interesting because I'm on the comptroller softball team, and when we play the fire department, they drive the fire truck over to the softball fields, which is a long ways away from the flight line, and that seems to work. So I'm talking about a lot shorter distance to the dining hall. So I said, why can't we just sort of cone off a place for those folks to park? And we already had an alarm system in the dining hall. So if something happens, they run out the dining hall, they jump in the truck and they're gone, just like they would if they was at a softball game. He said, well, maybe. But as it turns out, this guy was he really liked to eat. I mean, he really enjoyed foods and there was less variety in the dining hall he had. from the main. So anyway, I said, OK, chief, um, let's, let's you and I have lunch in the main dining hall. And so we went over, we went through the line, and his face lit up with the rows of desserts and the options for shrimp and steak. And once we got through the line and he got his plate, I didn't have to say anything more. It was over. He and I went over to the wing commander's office, and he said, sir, I'm sold, let's do it. And it saved a ton of money. But there were so many things like that throughout my career that I didn't have to look very hard, but I've just always been very passionate about it. Now, if you ask my wife, she'll just tell you I'm cheap, which is probably true too. But this is something I've always been passionate about. It's something I've enjoyed and still enjoy today.
0: And you allowed the desserts and the shrimp to do the convincing for you. Absolutely. So two themes kind of come together with that example. And we have a lot of discussions about what actually gets used on the base in conjunction with what kind of Air Force culture do 21st century airmen really want? Do they want to hang out at the bowling alley? What sort of assumptions are we making about the music they listen to? What kind of club they want to to go to on base? And that's a big part of recruiting and and retaining them.
1: It is. In in fact, just coincidentally, I'm I'm going to lead a panel for the Air Force Association Symposium in September addressing that very subject. Because you're, you're absolutely right. Airmen, you know, are smart. They are a lot more diverse. And the traditional things that the military brought to the table don't necessarily appeal to young airmen today. I mean, you know, think about back in 1946 or 47 when the Air Force was created, 1947. First of all, it was mostly a male service. Most of the younger folks were not married. There were very few people of color in the military. And so things have changed so much. There was no internet. There was no Facebook. You know, everything was different. And so fast forward to today, you know, when I joined the Air Force, (laughs) uh, especially when I got commissioned, I remember my first meeting with my new boss, I was a second lieutenant. He was a lieutenant colonel he called me in. He says, okay, go join the club, go, you know, go do. And so all of those things, you know, whether I liked the club or not was interesting, but not relevant to him. Th- they were things we were told to do. Things are so much different now. You've got both spouses working, both spouses with careers, with kids, with after-school activities. Airmen today don't have time to get off work after working a long day and go to the club or go to a meeting or go to, a, go do something with their boss. So I agree the Air Force is changing. The, the personnel system is, is behind in my view. The military, loses a lot of women as an example who have children and all of a sudden they go out and have a child. Let's say you're a pilot or you're in some career field that just that short delay can kind of put you behind your peers. We ought to have a system that accommodates that. If you are running a company and you had a and one of your most valuable employees had to step away for six or eight weeks, you would probably treat them a lot differently because you want them back and you want them ready to go because they're a future leader. I think the Air Force is changing. It's changing slowly but it is changing. Just a quick story. That I write about is just my wife and I. You know, when when I first got commissioned and we had our first. A social function, and I'm excited about that because I, I've heard about these social functions, but I didn't know anything about it. So I get this invitation in the mail. It says casual. My wife's from North Carolina. I'm from Southeast DC. Our view of casual was jeans and you know a shirt. And so fortunately, we were living on base. We go walking over the club, and we notice my peers walking in with the officer casual, which no one had told us about. You know, which were the dockers and the you know the golf shirt and the loafers. I didn't have any loafers, but but at the time, but but we. Had to run home and change. And so picture this. My wife and I walk into the club, only African-Americans at the function. I Again, that's not a complaint. It, it just is what it is. We're listening to conversations about golf and about tee times. And, I, you know, Southeast D.C. is known for a lot of things. Golf is not one of them. And so I had, I can't tell you the number of people that walked up to me and asked me what my handicap was. And I had no idea what they were talking about. Fast forward to the day, I actually had to have a handicap. I'm just embarrassed to tell everybody what it is. So we're almost in a foreign land in this club because conversations are... Are going on about something as, as trivial as TV shows that they were watching that we had never watched before. And it was just really fascinating to me. And so at some point during the evening, the band cranks up and they're playing country music. Now, look, I've got nothing against country music. But again, growing up in D.C. and my wife growing up where she did, we just never developed an appreciation for that genre because we never heard it. But everyone's singing to the, you know, singing the words and we're kind of looking around trying to lip sync as best we could. But my point is this whole assimilation process is one that you know, most people don't understand and don't appreciate. And it was just one more of those things that I had to learn to deal with, my wife and I both, that I don't think is obvious to people. And one of the things I try to do in the book is, is explain what that was like, not to make anybody do anything different, but just to give them appreciation for it. I remember I had a boss once. It was really an inappropriate thing to say, but I didn't get mad at him. What he asked me was, why is it that when I go to a social function and a black person enters the room, the first thing they do is go over, and if, if there's another black person in the room they kind of go over and they start talking to each other and I, I don't think he meant to be negative about that I think he was genuinely curious and I'm glad he asked me what I said back to him was think about this you're over in a, another country you walk into a social function of folks from uh, this country and you look across the room and you spot another American what would you do because you have something in common you know where are you from what are you doing here what do you do, what you know, where are you from in the states etc cetera, etc cetera. and so there's nothing nefarious about that there's nothing negative about it it's just it's a comfort level that allows you to to sort of get an initial conversation going get you comfortable so you can then start moving throughout the room and i was glad he asked me that but i was surprised that that wasn't obvious to him and so again I, one of the things i hope i do or hope i capture throughout the book is try to give folks insight into some of those things not again not that they should change what they're doing but just have an appreciation for if they find themselves in a situation like that and they're in a male-dominated room and a young woman walks in who you know maybe look a little bit uncomfortable go over to them and invite them in and try to get them more comfortable. So I hope that comes through uh, in the book as well.
0: Absolutely. One of the great examples of that was when you were at the FMB office at the Pentagon, you noticed that the culture there where it was a badge of honor to have a cot in the hallway and put in horrible hours and be away from your family, wasn't a good match for getting people to do their best work. How did you change that work culture?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question, because I will very rarely sort of talk about something I did. And it wasn't just me. It was the, the whole leadership team. But when I look back over my career, it's probably one of the things I'm most proud of because the Air Force budget, and I think it was similar in other services, and there are other Air Force, like operations and plans and programs that were similar. They were just sweatshops. It was nothing to work weekends late, and we did have cots there for people to spend the night. There were folks who couldn't go to see their kids' functions because it was just expected that, by God, we worked in Air Force budget, and we just, that's what we do. We work 14, 16 hours a day. That's what we do. I was determined when I got a chance to run FMB, that we're not going to live like that and and work like that. We didn't need to, to get the job done. A lot of that was self-inflicted. I can't tell you the number of times as a captain on the Pentagon working in budget that I would work all weekend uh, or stay up half the night to finish a project, put it in my boss's in-basket. Two weeks later, I go in my boss's office. It's still sitting there. He had not even looked at it yet. So a lot of it was self-inflicted and based on years of stereotypes and years of sort of that's just what we do in budget. The problem is you had folks in the field, nobody wanted to come, and it was just viewed as an awful awful place to work. And I was just determined to change that. So we got in with the leadership team and we said, look, we're going to work hard, but we're also going to play hard. And we're going to surge when we need to surge, but we're not going to surge when we don't need to surge. And we were able to sort of transform the entire environment where people started to enjoy coming to work. And probably the leadership tool that I use more than any throughout my career was leadership by walking around. So I would go around every day talking to people. How you doing? You know, how can I help you? And it was amazing to see folks sort of going from, you know, head down, stressed look to smiling, joking, talking about the game last night, but still getting their job done. And that was an important thing. One of the things I told folks was if I call your office and I'm looking for you and they tell me one of two things. They tell me you're either down in the gym working out or you went home because your spouse or your kid had some program. I said, consider that a good thing. That's a plus in my book. And it was amazing the weight that took off their shoulders that it's okay to be a human being you know and work in the pentagon unfortunately i think there are a lot of folks who associate success with long hours and associate good performance with long hours. And that's ridiculous. And what I told everyone in budget, if you want to impress me and get a strong rating, get your job done in eight hours and go home. That will impress me. I'm not taking credit for all that because it was the leadership team. When I look back, I'm probably most proud of that because I think we actually transformed some people's lives and helped them have a better work-life balance with their family.
0: One of my favorite stories from your book, and there are several, but please tell us about how you escaped your own kidnapping.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that was uh, interesting. When I say I've been fortunate in my career, I mean, I've been fortunate in my career. I mean, coming up as a financial manager, we never had the opportunity to be a commander, a group commander or wing commander. That was reserved for mostly pilots, but maybe some maintenance folks, but, you know, space. But you didn't see a wing commander who was a financial manager by trade. And so as luck would have it for me when I made colonel was when they introduced the support group commander or the group commander process by which they had a board that selected you for those jobs, irregardless of your career field. And so I was fortunate enough to be a group commander. And then coming off my group command, I was fortunate enough to be a wing commander, be selected for air base wing out in Utah at Hill Air Force Base. It was probably one of the most stressful times in my life because the wing commander I replaced had been relieved of duty. Morale was really low and they were due for a large inspection and they hadn't been inspected in five years and they'd had a pre-inspection and they failed them. And so here I come running in there. And by the way, I pinned on Colonel literally weeks before I went in and took over Wink. My whole group command, I was a colonel select. And so I get in there and all my group commanders are actually outranked me in that sense, although I was still their boss, but they had been colonels and I hadn't for a lot more time than I had. So we have this inspection and it was, I'm telling you, I didn't go out the gate for three months because it was every day, all day. And so the inspection finally arrives and picture this, we're in the base theater and the inspector gets up and says, you know, I got to be honest with you. Theater was packed. He said, we're going to be a little tougher on you because your wing commander, and he looked at me, was the group commander at Tinker Air Force Base, which happen to be in the same command. He's gone through one of these inspections before, and he knows what to expect. So we're going to be tougher on you. I said, oh my God, that's all I need. We get into it. And it's actually going pretty well. you know. Knock on wood, where things are going pretty well. As part of the inspection, they decide, okay, this isn't what we thought was going to happen. So let's take him out of the exercise and we'll test his vice wing command. Let's see how good the vice wing commander is. One morning, and I didn't know any of this. So one morning, I literally walk out the back of my house. There's an alley back there, which is close to our lodging office. These two ominous looking guys walk up to me and say, fortunately, they say, exercise, exercise, exercise. We're kidnapping you as part of the exercise and we're going to take you away. So They literally put a blindfold on my face. What was funny in hindsight was my wife saw this from the window of the house. So she called the office and said, hey, what in the world is going on? So vectors didn't know that, but my office already had a heads up that something was going on. And so they blindfolded me, but I know exactly where they're taking me. They took me into lodging, into a room. And then they got in and they said, look, we're going to level with you. As part of the exercise, we want to take you out and see how your vice commander is able to step up and and run the wing. So I said, fine. So I'm getting comfortable and talking to them and, you know, gaining their confidence. They said, hey, would you like any bread? I said, sure. So they took my order and they went out, I think, to the bowling alley or somewhere to pick me up some breakfast. I'm thinking, okay, this is an exercise and we're supposed to play this like real. So I simply got up. I opened the window. We were on the first floor of the lodging. I got jumped out of the window and I just went to work. They were really, really upset with me, but they couldn't say anything because they told us to play it like it was real. And I said, if you kidnapped me for real, I would try to escape. They actually talked about that during the outbrief. We did really well, by the way. That was something I'll never forget as well.
0: Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that the mainstream American population doesn't really understand the kind of commitment or sacrifices that military families make. And in the book, you bring up a really striking visit to Dover with the Air Force Secretary To see the return of some fallen service people. Why do you think Americans should know more about what the service does?
1: So I got to participate in a dignified transfer, which is essentially a short ceremony. As if someone is killed in the war zone, the remains are brought back to Dover Air Force Base. And there's a very short ceremony by which an honor guard team marches up to the airplane, they bring the casket out and they literally transfer it into a van that takes it off for processing. As part of that ceremony, they don't allow the public generally to attend, but they do allow family members to attend. And I had never, obviously being in the military on active duty, I was keenly aware of the operations, but I'd never experienced anything quite like that. And and so when it happened, the chief of staff was overseas. And so I was asked to go and I was happy to do so. And we had a brand new secretary of the Air Force. She had not gone, so she wanted to go as well. And so we both flew up together And I got to tell you, from the time we landed until the time we got back, the way the service is held, the way the ceremony is conducted, as solemnly as it is, to actually go over and meet the relatives of the fallen, to see the combination of being distraught and being emotional over losing their loved one, while at the same time being proud of the service that they gave to the country, to be standing at attention on the flight line as the C-17 rolled up and the back door came down to look up in the back of that airplane and see a casket draped with the flag and we're standing at attention and out of the corner of my eye looking across the flight line seeing the family there crying and just really upset over what's happened the whole thing just uh, just blew me away it all came sort of crashing down on me because I knew what I was going up there for but until I was there and the back of that airplane opened up and I said this is real and, and you could hear the family you you know in the background it just was unbelievable and as as i talked to the secretary on the way back you know my comment to her was every american needs to come up here and see this because It's my view that war for the American people, most American people, not all, is something that's sterile, that happens overseas somewhere. We all get up every day like I do. We get up, we go to work, we go to the beach, we go out to dinner. We don't think about on a constant basis that there are servicemen and women serving in harm's way, some of whom won't come back. And even for a person on active duty, that was like a ton of bricks that hit me that this is real. I mean, we've got people serving out there in a dangerous war zone. There are people over there trying to kill them and they're successful occasionally.
0: You're also one of the busiest retired people I think I've ever met. You've continued to serve Air Force people and interests in what you do now, revitalizing the AFA as well as the Air Force Benefits Association. What has it been like to move to the civilian business world?
1: Yeah, great question. It, it, the transition for me was uh, relatively easy. Uh, based on the work ethic I learned from my grandfather and father, I've always been a hard worker. My wife calls me a workaholic. I don't think that that's quite accurate, but I am one. Of those people who can't sit at home, even during the height of the pandemic when everything was closed down, most days I came I came into work. It, it was safe because nobody else was here. It, and it's not about the money. I enjoy being active and keeping my mind challenged. That's one of the reasons I was really honored to take the job of uh, president of the Armed Forces Benefits Association and now dual president of the Five Star Life Insurance Company because we serve those who serve the nation. So we serve military and first responders and, and their families and contractors of the government and government and federal employees as well. To be able to serve them is really an honor for me. But in addition to that, you know, I'm on three public boards. I'm on several advisory boards. So yeah, I do stay pretty busy. It's rare that I'm sitting at home doing nothing, but I'm not doing it because, you know, I have to do it or I'm going to stress myself out. Staying busy is something I enjoy. If I were to go on a cruise or take off for a week and go to Paris, it would drive me crazy. I can't think of anything more stressful than that. You put me at my house on a nice day outside with my 72 Monte Carlo, washing and waxing that car. I'm in complete calm. I've got the biggest smile on my face. My mind is focused squarely on that car. And I don't know of anything else going on around me. I've always been like that. Simple things relax me. When we had our house built in uh, Lorton, one of the things I insisted on, it was really two things. One is I wanted a three car garage and I wanted a front porch where I could have a rocking chair. And I told my wife, look, she was worried about the kitchen and backsplashes and colors And I said, look, I don't care about any of that. You give me a garage and a front porch and you build whatever else you want. But simply for me, sitting out on the front porch and we're kind of in a rural neighborhood and just to see deer and turkeys and just complete comfort to me to go for a walk. It just doesn't take a lot of money and fancy vacations to calm me. So I do love to stay busy again. Even when I'm at home, I'm doing something again, not not because I have to, because, because I want to. And my father was the same way.
0: My last question for you is something that I absolutely saw when I read your book, but now having had the pleasure of talking to you for an hour now, is that the guiding star in your life has been be kind. Throughout your life, people have given you a second chance or given you a hand and you've paid this forward. How should someone emulate that to be a better leader and a better person?
1: Yeah, 100 percent, and that kind of saved the best for last because twofold. One, I got a lot of second chances. It's funny to look back on now, but you know, I mentioned to you when I first joined the Air Force, I had a big afro. Unfortunately, when I joined the Air Force, I grew that afro back, just like all my peers. So it wasn't like I was alone and went through all kinds of elaborate, which I talk about in the book, tricks to disguise the the bulk of my hair. And I also talk about in the book where another chief master sergeant uh, caught me in a moment where I wasn't able to disguise my hair and actually put me in his also pickup truck and, t- and took me over to the barbershop and gave me a haircut. By the way, that was another turning point in my life, or in my career anyway. Here's the point. That made such an impression on me because people don't think of young airmen, 18, 19-year-olds, as the same as they think of 18, 19-year-olds on a college campus. They're going to do things, and in my case, you know, I was young and immature. They're going to do things that they probably shouldn't do. I think it's really important, though, for commanders and first sergeants to be able to discern between a character flaw or with some integrity issue versus just being young and you know, just doing what 18, 19-year-olds do. That's been a big push for my entire career is making sure I connect with the young folks in my unit and helping them work their way through that. And the other part is people have always been kind to me and given me chances and given me opportunity. I talk about a lot of those in the book. I'll give you one example. When I was coming back from Taiwan, again, uh, 18, 19 years old. So they put me in a, you know, an airplane in the middle row in the back, 6'1". And so I'm the person in front of me has got the seat back on my knees and, you know, back in those days you could smoke on airplanes. So it was very uncomfortable. So I was sitting in the Los Angeles airport and I was rubbing my knees and there was a gentleman sitting across from me. He said, Hey, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I just, you know, my knees are are hurting because I've on on a long flight and I just, I'll be fine. So we talked for a minute or so. He said, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm a businessman. I travel a lot. And he said, that's kind of tough. So anyway, uh, it was getting close to my flight to leave. It was a Direct flight from L.A. to Dulles so it was going to be another long flight. I went to the restroom. I came back. He was gone, but they had started to board the flight. And so they called out first class. And so I, I was just sitting there waiting for them to get to the last, you know, the last category. And a young woman who was working at the counter came over to me and said, didn't you hear what's called first class? And I actually laughed. I said, ma'am, you know, I would love to be in first class, but I'm not. And she said, yes, you are. That gentleman that was there came up and upgraded your ticket. And I was like, oh, my God. So I went on and I took my seat. First class is nice for those who haven't tried it. It's expensive, but it's nice uh, because they take good care of you. But I leaned over to the guy and I said, sir, thank you so much. I mean, I I can't afford to pay you for for this, but I really appreciate this. But I'd love to pay you back somehow. And he said, look, I fly a lot. I understand how it is uh, on long flights. And he said when he was coming up as a business person, a lot of folks helped him and they did favors for him, they were kind for him. And he said, he pledged to himself every day if he could, but every opportunity he had, he was gonna be kind and do something nice for someone. Uh, And he said, by the way, he gets more out of that generally than the person he helps does. And he said, look, if you wanna pay me back, You do that. You try to help somebody every chance you get. And I was 18, 19 years old. Since that time, I've tried to do that. Whether it's been in a McDonald's store where a restaurant and and a homeless person was outside and and I went out and said, hey, are you hungry? Come on in. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll get you what you need to Young airmen who were going down the wrong road and and I would literally invite them over my house or or I would go to their dorm room and say, hey, we need to talk. We need to have a heart to heart because I want to get you on the right road. Since that day, I've felt almost an obligation, even as far as, you know, in, in a place like D.C., which is tough, but even a place like D.C. to even let somebody in traffic. You know, a small thing like that goes a long way to make somebody feel good. And that's frustrating. You know, here, especially when you think about how divided our country is now, I think about sometimes if we would just be nicer to everybody, things would, I think, be in a lot better place. But something as small as, you know, if I go out here, which I'm going to do today, I'm going to get on 95 South and it's going to be like a parking lot. And they're going to be people that tighten up in the line so just so I can't get in. I mean, th- that's ridiculous. I purposely do that. And it, it does make me feel good when they pull in and they wave and say, hey, thank you. You know, think about that. What if we all did? that. So I'm glad you asked that because thinking about back about Congressman John Lewis, you know, we may not be able to change the world, but we can change by ourselves, but we can change it one person at a time. And that's what I try to do by being kind to people, by making our world better just one person at a time.
0: I can't think of a better way to wrap things up. General Spencer, thank you so much for being with us today. His memoir, Dark Horse, is out from Naval Institute Press. We'll have a link to his Green Eyeshades of War with Air University Press. I hope you have a great day and a great commute home. (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) thank you so much for having me. I I really appreciate it. I really appreciate everything that's done down at Air University. So thank you so much for what you're doing. And uh, it's just been a pleasure to talk to you and to meet you and to talk to you. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you.